This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The ability to pinpoint the underlying genetic causes of diseases and rapidly generate genetic medicines to address them has created the potential for the development of individualized therapies to treat patients with ultra-rare conditions. Everyone Medicines is seeking to industrialize this process and scale the development of N of 1 therapies. We spoke to Irina Antonijevich, Chief Medical Officer of Everyone Medicines, about the company's business model for pursuing N of 1 therapies for people with ultra-rare diseases, how it works, and whether it can be sustainable absent a mechanism for reimbursement. Irina, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you today. We're going to talk about Everyone Medicines, the development of N of 1 therapies, and how the company is seeking to help create a sustainable model for individualized precision therapies. Julia Vitarello is a, a co-founder of Everyone Medicines, and I think the story about her efforts to develop an N of 1 therapy for her daughter Mila, who had a form of the rare neurodegenerative condition, Batten disease, will be familiar to many of our listeners. But can you remind people about her story and explain how that led to the creation of Everyone Medicines? Yes, absolutely. And Julia continues to be a very ardent advocate and an incredible supporter of Everyone Medicines goals and objectives and aspirations. So I'm really, really grateful to be able to work with Julia and it was Julia who was first introduced to us to explore whether, you know, we, we wanted to join her on this, um, on this path, on this uh, path to adventure and, and, uh, uh, helping develop these therapies. And so Julia had a little girl, Mila, and uh, Mila was doing well, actually exceptionally well. She was a very bright and curious child. But then she started to just become more clumsy as a, as a really young little girl. And it just deteriorated from there. Then she started to lose her vision. And, and Julia was, of course, desperate to, first of all, trying to understand what was going on with her little girl. And she went through many different hands of physicians and, and hospitals. And nobody could really tell her what it was. And be at the beginning, even, I think she wasn't being taken so seriously. 
So ultimately what happened, and I believe it was really a, a, a coincidence. So there was an article about her and, and Mila in the New York Times and, and Timothy Yu, who is a, a geneticist and pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. His wife saw this article and said, Tim, can you do something about that? So this is how they connected. So Tim, Timothy Yu and Julia and Tim looked at uh, Mila's genome and he identified the mutation that was a really bespoke mutation in, in, in one of the genes uh, that, uh, that ultimately led to this rare form of Barton's disease. So there are two mutations that are needed, but one of the mutations was a very, very unique mutation. And so he set out to develop an antisense oligonucleotide so that's a, a new kind of molecules that can very precisely target certain genetic mutations. And so he developed this for Mila and he called it Milasen. So antisense oligonucleotides or ASOs often end with sen. So it was Mila and then sen, Milasen. And so he had discussions with the FDA because this, there, the, there wasn't a process in place to develop a therapy and a newly newly developed therapy for one individual um, and so there were discussions with the fda and and given the uh, advanced uh, stage of, of 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 mila so she wasn't doing so well so there was obviously a, a medical urgency and so they ultimately managed to you know develop this aso and and give it to starting to treat mila with that um, so these ASOs, uh, particularly for a disease that affects the brain, they have to be given through like a lumbar puncture. So there is a needle and the, uh, the, the liquid is injected into the spinal fluid um, and can then also reach the brain. And so Mila was treated uh, for, I believe, almost three years or around three years. Um, and you know, in one individual, it's hard to say how good the therapy was, but it seemed to sort of at least slow down the the progression. Um, but ultimately, it could not stop the progression, and, and ultimately, Mila died. Um, and I think this sort of put Julia and Tim, I want to say, on this mission to really make this something that A, can start much earlier upon the diagnosis um, and that we can create a community of people developing such kind of bespoke or individualized precision therapeutics. And Tim has <laughs> since then continued to identify some of these patients with these unique mutations and um, has treated, uh, you know, just a handful of patients and, and some other investigators are, are doing, uh, are pursuing a similar uh, objective. The notion of rare disease is really a policy construct. As a result, rare diseases often get spoken about as if they're monolithic. In reality, though, there's a bifurcation between rare diseases that provide significant out economic opportunities to drug developers, conditions like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, and hemophilia, and ultra-rare diseases, conditions 
where there may be fewer than 100 known cases. As you think about the rare disease landscape, what is the need that Everyone Medicines is trying to address? Everyone Medicines is trying to address or is seeking to address exactly these extremely rare diseases. We speak about N1 plus patients. So exactly to your point, I mean, rare diseases, I used to work at Genzyme. So obviously there are some uh, companies, uh, pharma biotech companies that, you know, have created a very, very viable business uh, by developing drugs for rare diseases. And the definition of rare disease is a bit different in different countries, but in the US it's typically less than 200,000. So it's a number. In, in Europe, it's more like a percentage. But nevertheless, these are uh, numbers of patients that allow you to actually conduct maybe even two clinical trials that are controlled and, you know, randomized controlled, um, where you can actually do some statistics to see whether the drug works. If you go down to very small numbers, this does not become feasible anymore. It is not Particular, I mean, in the extreme, if you have one individual, obviously you cannot run a clinical trial. And so everyone medicines sees itself as developing medications, drugs for those populations where right now we don't see any commercial organization that has set out to actually develop these uh, N1 plus therapeutics. And we think that the time is uh, uh, ripe for that because we have already seen in, in, in several efforts uh, that used whole genome sequencing that the number of unique mutations is actually larger than they might appear beforehand because, of course, we just know of one here, one there. But if we actually more systematically screen through the genome, particularly of individuals who show some symptoms, we see that um, many have these unique uh, mutations or constellation of unique mutations. And... Not all of them can be treated with an ASO, but those that can, we think that this is where we want to be. We want to develop what we call a process that allows us to identify the mutations, decide if they are really the, the cause of the disease. Obviously, this is important. Then decide if we can uh, correct the mutation sufficiently to expect a benefit with an antisense oligonucleotide and then develop it and develop it quickly through a process that we are literally launching as we speak. And we think that it is the speed that will be important so that upon a diagnosis, we can quickly uh, really deliver those therapies. And Multiple pieces have to fall in place. I don't want to say that it is without challenges, but we think that the time is really right for that because once we have a diagnosis, a genetic diagnosis, and we have the technologies to develop a treatment, I feel compelled to say we can do it, so we have to do it, and we have to find a way for this to be an approvable therapy, even if it's only for one individual, 
and it has to be reimbursed. We have to reinstate health, health equity for those families that have an enormous burden, of course, emotionally, but also financially. Julia talks about going from Mila to millions, scaling the process of what researchers were able to do and industrializing the development of N of one therapies. What's the potential for doing that? Yes. So we think it is all about making quick, but also good decisions on what is the right drug candidate. And then over time, I mean, we have a certain set of hypotheses. I think they're pretty solid hypotheses uh, because we, we, the very small team at Everyone Medicines, is very experienced with antisense oligonucleotides and more broadly with nucleic acid therapeutics. So we have uh, created, uh, we call it a funnel, how we can rapidly select those ASOs that we think are suitable to, again, incur benefit in the individual, but also be safe enough. And since you know Julia well, I mean, we are talking about, at least initially, we are talking about really severe diseases. So we are talking about children who, you know, have many, many seizures a day or have a rapid neurodegenerative process that they lose the ability to, to walk, to move their hands, to speak, potentially to breathe. So, so these are severe disorders. So of course, we still want this to be safe, but we don't have the time to spend you know, like it's three or four years optimizing it. So we have optimized the screening process to get to the decision of which one is the good therapy. And so with this, we believe that we can scale this up because the, the, the testing is very well informed and will become ever more informed as we continue to do this over time because what we have as a really unique situation in this case of N1 plus therapeutics is that the time from designing the ASO, do some tests and then taking it into the clinic is very short. Today it's about 12 months, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, around 12 months. And we think that we can really, really shorten this in dialogue with regulators. That's an important uh, statement I have to make. So we, we are in communication with uh, regulators, but obviously they have to agree to that. But then it means that we can very rapidly feedback the learnings from each one ASO that we have developed and taken into an individual or just a handful of individuals where our predictions correct. If not, we can you know, revise what did we learn. So it's a very quick learning process. And so this is what we think is uh, scalable. Um, and really we plan to be able to address you know, many, many patients, uh, I mean, as, as the future will sort of deliver this diagnosis. Uh, so that is the goal of Everyone Medicines. Well, how does Everyone Medicines work? What What's the business model? Who are Everyone Medicines customers? And how, how does it get paid? So at the moment, Everyone Medicines is a, is 
biotechnology startup. We are located in Boston and we have what we call seed funding. So we have uh, very reputable and very serious investors who are really committed to make this work. So they gave us seed money to sort of start building this process, so identifying certain individuals, start building this process. So the way we, and we, we are a young company, so the, the, this concept of everyone medicines had, has been around, I would say maybe about two years, but it was really very much stealth mode. And um, the, the current team, which is fully dedicated, so we are, employed to work at everyone medicines so we have an um, interim ceo who represents one of the uh, investors as well and then we have three full-time employees and i'm one of them um, and so we are doing a lot of the activities virtually but we are building also a network with uh, investigators who see these patients we are also working with uh, investigators, particularly in the uh, UK. Uh, your listeners, and you might be familiar with the uh, genome project, the 100,000 genome project in the UK, uh, which is where they have really set out to sequence whole genomes from 100,000 people. We have heard that they have more by now. And so this kind of data allows us to also identify a genes that you know are maybe more represented um, in terms of their mutations in this uh, data set than we would have expected. So the idea is to use such existing data. There aren't there are some of these data sets that exist, and then we have some investigators that see these very rare children that you know had a diagnostic odyssey and then land in their hands. And then once they are doing the whole genome sequencing, this is when they can find those rare mutations. So I would say our customers are, to some extent, also families who can approach us but then also uh, physicians. And so that's why we are creating this sort of network with physicians. So that, and, and then using existing genome data that allow us to identify likely mutation that we will encounter in the future so that we can actually start developing ASOs, uh, maybe based on only one patient, but we expect that there will be more patients, maybe, you know, five in the next, whatever, 10 years. Um, and we will have the drug ready for them as soon as they are diagnosed. So it's also important to say we are global. We, um, we are based in Boston, as I said. So, uh, but we, we do really have, want to have an outreach globally. And we definitely have, um, engaged with investigators and, uh, and, and genomic data sets, uh, both in the US, uh, a little bit in Canada, and also in Europe and the UK. Is the expectation that you'll be exclusively focused on antisensual oligonucleotides, or will you be exploring other modalities as well? For the moment, we will focus on ASOs, but we definitely want to explore other modalities as well. We, the reason for starting with ASOs is that many of the rare diseases affect children, in fact, more than 70%. And many of those rare diseases in children affect the brain or the spinal cord, so the central nervous system. And ASOs 
have this ability to be taken up, particularly by neurons, but also other brain cells. And so we don't need anything other than a very precisely targeting ASO. We don't need a delivery vehicle. So we think that this is a very uh, good starting point to build this sort of process and start developing treatments for this high unmet need diseases. But ultimately, we think that, you know, the technologies are expanding all the time, like literally all the time. Uh, and so we think that we will just be watching and observing the progress. And we definitely think that there could be RNA gene editing technologies, you know, gene therapies. It's all about delivery. So getting the drug to where it needs to go, for instance, in the brain. And so this is where ASOs just offer an easy way into that. But as new uh, technologies are available that allow us to do this for other modalities, particularly within the nucleic acid therapeutics, because they are very precise. You know, they are very, they can be uh, designed in a way that they very precisely target a, a, a unique mutation. So we definitely want to broaden out. And I just want to say, because what, what I maybe um, didn't really fully address is how, how is this going to be a, a business, you know? So we think that uh, by talking to payers or insurance companies and regulators, we can create this path that allows us, like for any other drug, to have a drug that is ultimately reimbursed because it provides a benefit, a, a favorable risk benefit. So there is a greater benefit than there is a risk. And so it, just because it's for one or just a handful of individuals, there shouldn't be, in principle, ethically speaking, why would they not be reimbursed? So we just have to find a way to make to make it acceptable from a also regulatory point of view that this is actually a drug that has shown, you know, a reasonable profile because it has been developed based on a certain process. Um, and so this is what we are working. We are generating data with new ASOs and we want to treat some individuals while we use this data also to explain to both regulatory agencies, but also insurance companies what what is at stake here and how we think we can develop these therapies that should be reimbursed. And so this is an ongoing discussion, but we, we have had discussions already and we think that there is really not everyone and not every insurance company and different in different countries somewhat, but there is a recognition that this somehow that we have to overcome the challenge we have today and create a path. Uh, and we think we will be able to do that. There are many well-known challenges to rare disease drug development. These are amplified when it comes to developing a therapy for an individual patient or an ultra-rare disease population. On the other hand, you don't have to go through full drug development and seek an approval for therapy to actually dose a patient. What do you see as a, a realistic timeline from the start of a project to actually getting medicine in a patient? So at the moment, we think a realistic time frame is about 12 months. This is ambitious and, you know, it can be 14 months, you know, but um, might be 11 months. So, so I think that's a realistic time frame. This, uh, I mean, does assume that, you know, we go through the sort of testing scheme that we have devised um, and that, 
you know, we, we find a good ASO. Uh, again, we are pretty confident we will. But um, so this, uh, I would say, is a reasonable time frame. And, and at the moment, uh, you know, the FDA has issued, I mean, they issue a lot of draft guidances and then ultimately guidances. So they have issued a draft guidance specifically on the development of ASOs for this N of 1 patients. And so this is kind of like a guidance document uh, to tell us what the FDA expects in terms of testing before it can go into a, an individual. And so the other agencies, for instance, in Europe, have not issued such guidances or draft guidances. This is why it's important for us to have this conversation with them to see what they would expect. So this process, just the way it's laid out right now, you know, takes about about 12 months, uh, just because there are certain elements in it that include, for instance, some, uh, some animal testing that just require a certain amount of time. But we think that with this sort of informed and iterative learning from the ASO design through the sort of in vitro, so just cell models and then in vivo testing, we can actually speed up this process. So our goal is to start with, you know, a draft guidance that exists, but have these discussions and generate data in the next two to three years to actually show that we can speed up this process so that it would be faster. And I don't want to say a definitive number of weeks or months, but we are pretty confident that this can be a faster process to then take a new drug into an individual with a particular with a severe disease. And we think at the beginning, um, you know, we, we call this a stage one of our platform of our process is where we would actually show that we can do that, that we can develop some new ASOs. We take them into these um, uh, children with severe diseases and we look for safety and efficacy that has to be defined in each individual because these children have often a very sort of unique set of maybe symptoms and we want to make sure that we understand and this is where we will be working particularly with the families to understand what is most important for the child for the family what would they want to see improve what is really what is sort of creating this disease burden for them and you know it could be something like my child can you know grab uh, the spoon again and, and feed itself or my child can walk maybe slowly but can walk or you know that so there are different aspects my child has fewer hospitalizations so so there are different different ways to measure that but we would want to initially show that we measure this in a rigorous way in an individual child so that we can say here we have shown you that it is safe and it has some benefit and then again over time we think that by identifying what are the key features of such um, ASOs, we can speed up this process so that we don't have to actually do any clinical testing, but the vision is that the drug is developed through a process and can then uh, be uh, given as a reimbursable therapy to the individuals for whom it was made. Time is such a critical issue for these patients. Many of them will seek to develop treatments when 
a child has a, a progressive and degenerative condition. And in, in many cases, by the time a, a child is diagnosable, the disease can be far along. What level of understanding of a disease and, and what testing of a therapy is needed before dosing a patient? And what's being done to move regulators to get growing comfort with compressing the preclinical timeline? So, so these are <laughs> all good questions, but many questions in, uh, in one question. So, so the, I mean, in principle, the regulators have, you know, have considered that there must be a way to accelerate a drug development if there is a severe disease. But I think it also does depend on the modality of the drug. So this is why these draft guidances from the FDA are very specific to ASOs and these very severe uh, diseases. So this is where, and Julia is really, she puts it so well, because the risk of treatment is almost always less than the risk of not treatment, because if you don't treat, the child will certainly progress and die. So this is where the benefit-risk equation is very different from a disease that maybe, you know, doesn't lead to, to rapid death, yeah? But so this is where it is important to have a dialogue with the families and with the child to identify what the individual symptoms are. And because you don't have a control group, you have to think of clever ways how to demonstrate in an individual, yeah, that the therapy has some benefit. And, you know, there are some symptoms that, um, I mean, you can measure them before you start the treatment, and then you can measure them on treatment. We also ha have, of course, access to, for instance, imaging. When we talk of, about brain diseases, imaging can be a useful addition to also measuring if there is a benefit. And, you know, there are also some digital tools like, you know, variable sensors that can also measure in a, in a finer way certain aspects, for instance, of, of, of movements that are altered. Um, and then they can be linked to, you know, uh, just more day-to-day -day activities that are affected if the movement isn't that coordinated, for instance. So this is what we would then work out uh, in a given individual. Because, I mean, you mentioned this at the beginning also, that even within a rare disease, there are differences between the individuals, even though they are all classified as whatever the disease might be. And so with an NO1, it's, of course, they are just representing themselves. So it's important to really understand what the symptoms are and what tools do we have to measure them. And for the safety, it's a little bit easier, I would say, because the ASOs are as a drug class. We have come to, you know, understand certain features of them in terms of um, safety uh, issues uh, that we can monitor. And so we think, again, that there are certain design features that reduce the risk in the first place, but we will also monitor for those. Because even if it's a, you know, fatal and progressive disease, we still want to make sure that we also learn and we definitely don't want to create more harm. But we think ASOs are a good class for that because of their precise effects and re reasonably well understood side effects. 
there are a number of patients who have been treated with N of 1 therapies from existing efforts to date. My sense is it takes about 4 to $5 million to get to dosing a patient, and this usually involves a bit of goodwill and a, a nonprofit setting. What's your sense of what it will take financially, and are there opportunities to cut the cost through scaling what you're doing? Yes, I think that's exactly what, what we think. So there, there are, I mean, you know, your costs are about right, and it, it is it is uh, very expensive, uh, unfortunately, even with an abbreviated package. Um, but there are, I would say, at every step of the way, there are ways to... Um, reduce the cost, at least in the future. And, and this is where we think it is very important to have a, um, a clear set of experiments that we think are the most meaningful to select the right uh, clinical candidate drug, um, but also to have this iteration of rapidly learning and have the dialogue with the regulators, because what we think is that fewer and fewer uh, tests should be needed in the future to to identify which ASO is the best ASO and can be therefore taken rapidly into the clinic. Because also, as I said, we can monitor in the clinic the, the, the safety as, as well as the pharmacological effects. And so by simply doing fewer tests, um, you will save time and you will save costs. Um, so there is one aspect of this development which is maybe the most difficult to really dramatically reduce in terms of costs. And this is actually the manufacturing of the drug. So we, we think that we can sort of understand the particular biology and the effects of the drug in you know, cellular and animal models better and better and better and speed up this process and do fewer experiments and again, build a sort of scalable process with rapid learnings. Now, the drug quality that you know, is important to ensure because you, you, you want to be sure that you have a high quality drug that you know, doesn't have any uh, potential harmful uh, impurities or something. So, so you, you, you need to have a certain rigor in how you actually manufacture these ASOs. So, of course, these are manufactured at a relatively small scale because even if you have a handful of individuals, you know, um, you, you don't need so much as when you have like hundreds and thousands of patients. So it's always a small scale, but the quality still has to be good because what we don't want at all is to, you know, have something that is not really reflective of the drug, but just the drug process that hasn't been properly quality controlled. So this is something that um, we still think there is some efficiencies uh, that we can uh, devise in this manufacturing process, but this will be something that simply will always have to, uh, you know, stick to certain quality standards. But importantly, ASOs, you know, as an individual is treated, and because they are not one and done treatments, but you treat again and again, this offers certain advantages. First of all, it offers the advantage that you can actually adjust the dose if you need to, you know, 
even the, with the best of, of, of knowledge and experience, once you start to treat a human, you will be able to see whether the dose that you assumed would be the right dose is the right dose. So with an ASO, unlike with a, for instance, gene therapy or gene editing, you can actually continue to make adjustment to the dose. And of course, in the worst case, you can stop the therapy or you can increase the interval. You know, we don't know, maybe some disorders have to be treated for some years and then maybe you can reduce the treatment, either the frequency or the dose. Like we have to also be mindful of, do we have to treat for the entire life? Do we have to treat for a certain amount of time? So, you know, this might also be different for each individual, but there are some neurodevelopmental diseases that might require an adjustment of treatment over time. So, so all of this, um, I mean, can be done with an ASO. And we, we think that Again, the sort of reimbursement should occur for something that, you know, creates a benefit. Um, and by doing this uh, across different patients and across different countries, um, with an ever faster development, we will, every data point will give us more lessons learned. And we think that we will be able to create really a, a, a process that, um, goes very quickly um, and is affordable in a way that the drug is reimbursed and therefore if it's reimbursed you know by treatment you can sort of get the costs that you initially invested in developing them you talked about reimbursement earlier and it sounded somewhat optimistic the the question of cost is inseparable from the issue of reimbursement what will it take to get payers to recognize the value of N of 1 therapies and pay for these medicines without having them FDA approved or having a large dossier to establish their cost effectiveness? Yeah. So this is where the conversations we have had so far clearly show that there are differences in different countries. Um, but I do also want to stress that our goal is to have a parallel dialogue both with regulators as well as with uh, the insurance providers so that in an ideal world, there would be a path to an approval, a rapid approval of an, uh, an ASO that has followed a certain agreed upon process in being selected and tested. Uh, because uh, it, I think it is easier to have these uh, discussions about reimbursement when there is a path to an approval. But I do want to say that there are, you know, compassionate use, named patient. Um, so there is a way, even today, um, and you mentioned that, that yes, some people have already been treated with N01 ASOs. So there is a way to have this reimbursed. It's just on a one-by-one -one basis. And we would like to really create uh, a, a process that also doesn't uh, require like every single time uh, a discussion and negotiation with a particular insurance providers, but so that there is a certain path that is sort of established and that if certain criteria are met, um, this drug is, is reimbursed. And again, I think the advantage of a continued treatment is that it's not about a huge upfront initial cost but you can monitor the benefit and the risks 
of the treatment over time and can adjust. And if you decide to do so, also discontinue the treatment and then you know, there's obviously no reimbursement needed anymore. So we think that this is actually an advantage um, as the first N1 plus uh, drug development platform to have something that can be adjusted um, and therefore also adjust the reimbursement. As we've seen the evolution of N1 therapies, we've also been reminded that these therapies are not without risk. There was a case last year of an ASO developed to treat a child with a rare epilepsy who died from a side effect from the treatment. How do you think about the risk of these therapies and do patient families weigh them or do they believe that these risks are not significant enough to sway them because of the trajectory of these diseases? Uh, so we are quite familiar with the case you, you mentioned. What I'm saying now is my truly personal view, but I um, this is really my, my strong view that when we struggle to make a clear statement about efficacy in N of 1, because, you know, we, we have ways to think how we can measure a benefit, but it is still an N of 1, there is no control. It's the same with the safety. So I think the statement that this was clearly linked to the drug and only to the drug is, I think it's not quite possible. I think it's likely that the drug contributed to it. We think that there are certain features of that particular drug that um, has contributed to it. And this is why I believe that we have created at Everyone Medicines criteria that allow us to select better drug candidates that we believe will have fewer of these class side effects. Because I consider um, what we have seen with the sort of, I mean, you know, it starts very often with just more um, liquid in the brain. I mean, there's always liquid in the brain, the, the, the uh, cerebral spinal fluid, uh, but with sort of like ventricular enlargement. So there looks to be like more space where this fluid is. Um, and, and, you know, we have seen this in, 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 in other indications. And so, so I think this looks like a, a class effect. And we believe that there is a way to, uh, to mitigate the risk for this effect uh, in the design of the ASOs. And so, but we will also be monitoring this, of course. You know, this is one of these typical class effects. Um, and this is where, again, an ASO has the advantage to be able to adjust the dose or increase the frequency, uh, decrease the frequency of dosing. If you see something where particularly you're not sure, is this a, a side effect or is this a disease itself? Um, so, so there can be adjustments made. And then ultimately the decision um, to, to start treatment and continue treatment has to be made with the, with, with the patient and the families. And I believe that the families are different. For some, you know, they might be willing to accept more risk than, than others, you know. And so this is where I think it's important to have this conversation with, with, with the families um, and sort of outline the, the potential risks, outline the ways to monitor for that. I, again, strongly believe that we have come to learn more about ASOs in the last three to four years. And I think some of these lessons learned are very important. 
And I think we can utilize them to make drugs that simply have a lower risk for some of these class effects. But at the same time, we monitor for them so that we can make adjustments quickly. Irina Antonievich, Chief Medical Officer of Everyone Medicines. Irina, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Great to speak with you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.